Hello everybody, it's Andy here. Welcome to this week's episode. Today we are talking about what it takes to be a serious player. Now, do you ever notice how some golfers just have the ability to get the job done? Despite some of them having a weird looking golf swing, they can still score consistently and when the pressure's on, they actually turn it on and they play better. Well, today's guest certainly knows how to play this game well. He's a former European Tour professional and now he's a senior manager for global sports marketing for Adidas Golf. Today he shares what he looks for when signing world-class talent, people like Colin Morikawa, Xander Schauffele, and also what separates them from the rest. And he shares his own thoughts and experience really about how to actually play this game better. This episode, in my opinion, is just full of so many great takeaways that you can apply straight away to your game and none of it really is technique-based. So if you're listening at home, get a pen and a paper. If you're driving the car or in the gym, then just listen hard because this is great. So much value. And he's also a good friend of ours as well. We're playing quite a few games of golf with him and he's frustratingly good and certainly doesn't overcomplicate things. So without further ado, please welcome to the podcast, Matt Blackie. Blackie, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for your time. I know it's early over in California and you said it's cold, which I don't believe it is, but you said there's a frost. Um, how's it going? Uh, it's great and great to see you boys and thanks for having me on. But uh, yeah, very unusual to get frost on the uh, on the West Coast here near San Diego, but um, somewhat reminds me of home and almost a white Christmas, which is uh, something we all look forward to. <laughs> Um, well, look, let's kick it off, just Blackie, first of all, just talking about, um, in as fast as you can, really, in that 30 seconds, what is your role at Adidas Golf? What do you do? So I'm a senior manager in global sports marketing, which is basically, you know, you can pigeonhole that as, you know, athlete sponsorship. So obviously, we've got a tremendous stable of athletes, you know, from Colin Morikawa, Dustin Johnson, Terrell Hatton, Joaquin Neiman, the Hoygaard, you know, twins in, in Europe, as well as some great you know, female athletes, Jing Young Ko and Danielle Kang, etc. So we're well served around the world with some great athletes. But, you know, to sign those athletes, someone needs to go out, identify the talent, recruit the talent and then sign it to the brand. So that's pretty much in a nutshell my role. So players such as, you know, Colin, who talked about there and, and Xander Schauffele as well. They're guys I spoke through the American Collegiate and not even prior to that through American Junior Golf Association. Um, so spent a lot of time watching those athletes, trying to identify, right, are these going to be superstars of the future? Then obviously, you know, get them um, to become brand ambassadors. So through amateur you know, status rules, you're able to sponsor these players. Hopefully they like the product. And then as and when they turn pro and sign an agent, you obviously start discussing things with the agent and hopefully bring them on board. So you know, we've got some great products. Obviously, you guys are, you know, Adidas ambassadors for us, which is great. Um, you know what the products are like. And then we feel that the products help enhance the players, play their best. And we've been very lucky with the players we've signed. Um, because as we know, you know, identifying a player at sort of 22, 23 doesn't guarantee they're going to be a superstar. But, you know, we've had some great success with, you know, Colin this year has had an amazing year with, you know, his second mega championship, Xander obviously winning um, the gold medal, which was a very cool thing for him, you know, with his sort of Jap Japanese heritage. And then Jin Young-Ko winning five times LPGA sort of player of the year, winning the CME Tour Championship as well. So another amazing year of success on the golf course for us. But 
you know, my job is now, right, what's the next breed? You know, who's coming through next? So, you know, I have players, uh, sorry, members of staff, Neil Raymond, who you guys know, who works in Europe, Robbie Ziegler, who works for me in the, the States here, and they're constantly looking at this next sort of class of players coming through. So exciting times right now for the brand, but, you know, exciting also to try and identify this talent in the future and bring it on board. Plus, we've seen the clothing for next year, and it is class, to be fair. I'm looking yeah, I mean, it astounds me. Obviously, I'm very close to it. Um, all the product is designed, you know, here in Carlsbad. You know, I haven't been into the office much, but I was in for a couple of days recently and saw, you know, I was going sort of geek out and see the design sort of studio up there and have a look around. And it amazes me every time. I sort of think, well, this is the best shoe I've ever seen, or these are the best, <laughs> you know, range of polos. And then each time it just looks better and better. And, you know, we're very good at showing the players about eight, nine months early of what they're going to be wearing. And, you know, the, the player feedback for this, this coming year has been amazing as well. And they're all excited, which is great because as and when you bring on new players, you sort of tempt them a bit with that as well. And, you know, they're all coming from other golf brands. So you need that excitement. And it's been, um, yeah sort of non-stop praise and uh, you know a lot of the players from the photo shoot we did in September were like can I take this now and sort of start wearing <laughs> it and you're sort of you're saying okay you can but you know please don't post any pictures yet because you know it's no different than you know the embargo that the, the the club manufacturers have on drivers you know there was obviously that tease this week with you know Tiger using the new tailor-made driver which I'm sure you know TM absolutely loved because uh, you know A he was hitting it very well and you know it certainly looks pretty cool too. Yeah, and look, you certainly have like you have a great eye for. I mean, you mentioned people like Morikawa, Xander. You have a great eye for spotting this talent early on. Um, what what would you say? First of all, what do you notice that the best players in the world? What do they have that the others don't? And also, what are you what are you looking for when you go and see? You know, you're out at these, you know, certainly in the college and and sort of past that. What are you really going to look for when you're identifying talent, if you like? Um, you know, first and foremost, it can they play golf? And you know, I was fortunate enough to play professionally for ten years, had a good amateur career prior to that. So you know, didn't have a sparkling career, but I think anyone who plays, you know, four or five years on the European tour sort of understands the game per se. But, you know, I was blessed to play with a lot of very talented, you know, guys on the tour at that time. I could see what made them different to me in terms of how much talent they had, or maybe it was mentally. I think the key thing I've found now is the bigger the moment, the better, the better guys play and girls as well. And, you know, I look at, you know, I was a, a great racket sports player growing up and I remember seeing, you know, the likes of Bjorn Borg and John McEnroe, and then in, in current times, you know, Nadal, Djokovic and Federer. You know, the bigger the moment towards the end of a Grand Slam final, the, the standard of play almost elevates itself. It's quite astounding. And I think that's really what I looked at with the golfers was to see, right, the bigger the moment when I know the pressure's on, because I've been in that situation, and these, these guys and girls, they don't shy away from it. They actually welcome the nerves it's as if like I've trained to be in this situation and their kind of confidence grows the trust in themselves grow but their focus 
an ability to really hone in on exactly that one shot at that one time becomes even greater. And then those that don't quite have it, and, you know, it's somewhat of a learned skill. You can, through, you know, trial and error or, you know, disappointments, you can get better um, because there's some, you know, great work to be done out there from a psychology standpoint. But that, to me, is what sets apart, you know, the good players from the really great players. And I think Colin's been, you know, testament to that with regards, you know, those big moments he's had, you know, to win events this year, whether it's the Open Championship or the PGA Championship prior to that. He'd just gone on and done it. And a quick story, I remember watching him, you know, the year he was graduating um, from from Cal here in in California. He was playing in the Pac-12 Championship, which is the conference that his college plays in. It was up in Eugene in Oregon, which is a great old golf course, very tight, very narrow. And he had a two-shot lead, I believe, going into the final round. And I was pretty much deciding that day if this was our guy, if this was the kid that was going to be the future of our brand. Obviously, we had some great athletes still with you know the likes of Dustin Johnson, etc. But we needed to start making some investment within the college space. And I'd had a great relationship with Colin for many years through AJGA and through his college time. And, you know, Cal is an Under Armour school, so he's not wearing the Adidas product while at school. And got to the last day. It was a breezy day, so quite tough. He had a sort of edgy sort of start, and then he settled down. And then the back nine, I think he shot four under on the back nine when, you know, he wanted to finish on a high. It was pretty much his final college tournament. You know, he wanted to win it for Cal. He wanted to win it for himself. Obviously, you know, all those people that have been part of his support network. And I remember calling my boss at the time just saying, this is the guy. You could just see him grow and grow and sort of gaining confidence that back nine when it was tough. It's a tough golf course in tough conditions. And he just showed himself a class apart above everybody else. You know, that sort of made it clear in my mind he was the guy for us and then you know obviously he's gone on to prove prove that since turning pro i've got a well i've actually got a couple of questions on this actually because obviously you mentioned about the facts of you being on the european tour and having a very good amateur record and we're going to definitely talk about that more as you the golfer but having that experience number one does that help you when you're identifying the talent and number two does it help in negotiation as well um it, it definitely helps in identifying the talent. Um, you know, obviously all of these players have achieved way more than I did. So I can sort of say, well, if they're all better than me, then, you know, they're on a, they're on a good start straight away type thing. But no, I think, you know, it gave me through my amateur career and my pro career, such a great, almost front row seat of some of the best players. You know, I was lucky enough to play with, you know, all the greats of my time, whether it was, you know, Nick Faldo, Darren Clark, Lee Westwood, Monty, players like that. I got to see them all in their sort of, you know, heyday as such. I suppose Faldo was sort of coming towards the end of his sort of, you know, major winning spell. But still such a cool thing to see these guys, you know, whether it's how they warmed up in the morning, how they conducted themselves on the golf course, and almost what they did afterwards as well, just their own time management. So it gave you a great sense of, right, this is someone that ascended to the top of the world. You know, what is it that they do that's sort of different to what I did? And I was a great mimicker. You know, I wouldn't sort of copy swings and stuff, but I looked at habits and just the way they would practice and, 
you know, that efficiency of time, because I think that's as golfers, we have so much time to practice, but you want to use that time wisely. And I think that's the one thing that amateurs, you know, don't do well is using that time. Obviously, amateurs have jobs, careers, families, so their time is, 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 you know, less abundant. So to use that time wisely to get the most out of your game, I think is a key lesson. I know you, you guys are great at that, creating these coaching plans and what have you. So I think that's something that's very important. What was the second part of the question? Yeah. My memory negotiation. Does it, does it help you? Does it help <laughs> so you negotiation, through all the... I think, yeah, look, there's a trust and respect level. When suddenly, you know, you start chatting to agents and players as well, they know that you've played. I also, you know, never had massive contracts, but was aware of obviously, you know, contracts and speaking to manufacturers and, you know, I had management companies as well for a couple of years when I was on tour um, negotiating on my behalf. So, yeah, I had a snapshot of it. Um, and I think, you know, I sort of I found myself quite comfortable in that space and not somewhat overawed because, you know, you're dealing with some you know fairly hefty numbers. So, you know, you need to be able to deal with that. And there's a, you know, as much as as, as playing on a golf course, there's a mentality aspect to that. There's a mentality aspect to negotiating deals as well you sort of you know it's it's i suppose it's like a game of poker you're trying to not show your hand too much oh you you know we, we like this player but you know they're not great type thing when you're desperate to get them you just don't want to sort of sell the house you know straight away type thing so yeah i think you're right my experience on the golf course has definitely helped you know with this this phase of my you know working career now i'm trying to figure out andy whether he's good at saving zeros or whether he's looking a little bit further to the to the left when it comes to the numbers. <laughs> <laughs> so you you mentioned as well about you know these great players, no matter what sport, you know when the yeah. when it gets towards the end, the final or the final round, that they really sort of amp up their abilities. Are there any other traits that you see? Because it's it's anyone listening to this now, because obviously when we do this podcast, we want to make sure people listeners get value. There's a lot of people who listen to this podcast that aren't going to be in that situation, but are there any sure. other traits that you see from the elite golfers that could maybe could help? Yeah, I think just, I'm just going to quickly, quickly jump in on that just quickly before you answer this yep. one, Becky. Because although the amateurs listening to this might not experience what it's like to walk down... Um, let's say the 18th at the Open, if they're playing in a monthly medal or club mm -hmm. championship, walking down the 18th feels pretty similar. It feels very, it, very similar. Absolutely so it's, it's right. Same feelings. It's all relative, you know, whether you're playing for three bucks or, you know, playing for three million. It's all relative. You know, you'll have those butterflies in your stomach. Um, you know, you'll have that sort of rush of emotion and energy, which you're not used to, sort of dealing with and the hardest thing you know with adrenaline is learning to control it and I think one of the things I see with these top players is their ability to slow everything down and I don't just mean in terms of their swing but just the way they do things and it was one of the things I noticed with Tiger you know I was able to play in a few tournaments with him but when you've sort of when I've watched him now you know going to the final rounds of of major championships he would slow himself down so much that, you know, you almost think he's walking in slow motion, but he knows there's so much energy in coursing and he gets nervous. Every single player gets nervous. Any player says they don't get nervous is basically trying to kid you that they're not nervous. We all get it. And, you know, I, you know, worked with certain psychologists during my time on tour 
and it was certain, just certain or all of them so <laughs> pretty much all I, I got fired by most of them because <laughs> the space, but um read every book going and you know one of the guys i worked with said don't call it nerves call it sort of uncomfortable excitement which i thought was a great phrase because mm. you know excitement suddenly puts a positive spin on it but it is uncomfortable because you're like my arms my legs don't feel the same i'm somewhat shaking um you know i feel sick and all this sort of stuff but it means that you're in a position that is important to you and shows that you're probably towards the higher end of the leaderboard and things like that so i think the first thing is to embrace that sort of feeling and go right that means i'm doing well because i'm getting these feelings and then the other thing is to slow everything down and that becomes your golf swing the way you act but probably more importantly your breathing I think everybody gets sort of, you know, you almost feel tight. This is where the choke sort of word comes from because you feel so tight in your neck. You know, you're, you're struggling to swallow your mouth's, you know, dry. And every breath is just this short, sharp heave because you're just trying to get oxygen in because your body needs oxygen to be able to perform properly. So I think this is, that, this is how Blackie feels when he plays with us, Pierce. That's what he's no, 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 I've seen it before. I never get nervous with, I'll be perfectly honest. <laughs> but, um, you know, and, and that that's a common feeling, whether you're, you know, playing in your monthly medal, playing with your buddies for a few pounds, or these guys that are guys and girls at the top of their game, the major championship, everybody pretty much feels the same. Yeah, the outcome probably has more impact in terms of the, the, the pro end of things, but, you know, won't detract from an amateur winning, you know, one of their club championships, which at the time is the most important thing to them. So I think if you can slow everything down, breathe, you know, breathing exercises, and then, you know, this is where your practice comes in because, you know, if you practice right, and we talked about that there, your time management when practicing, if you practice right, practice the right things, the trust and confidence in yourself will be there because you're going like i've prepared properly it's it's like going for a, a test um you know lots of kids over here at the moment are having finals and you sort of know that you know i was a classic you know cramming for the final evening of a test you know not being the world's most academic person and it all you end up doing is just scrambling your brain really whereas you know if you have a plan in place to do your revision and what have you you'll turn up to that exam way better prepared way more relaxed a couple of questions in it's a bit like you know on a golf course a couple of good shots down the first hole we immediately relax and it's no different than taking an exam a couple of questions in you feel good with the answers and then you're off you're off to the races and that's the same thing you know that's really what golf golf is about too yeah i think you i think you mentioned some brilliant i'm just making some notes here blackie as we're going through this i think the re reframing to to say it's exciting is a great one for the amateurs to think about if they're feeling nervous just to change yeah. it in their head. And, and again, just, just getting out the head and taking control of their body, taking control of how they move. And, you know, you, we have all seen Tiger when he's moving super slow, sure. just to maybe have that feeling and thought if they're in a scenario, just to slow their movement down, slow their breathing down, get out of the chest into their body. And I just wrote another one here in just, just preparation for the situation. You know, I think a lot of people ask how they, how, how can they feel less, nervous on the golf course well a lot of the a lot of that is done pre a lot of that is done before yeah. the golf course isn't it sure i think if you turn up you know underprepared i.e lacking trust in yourself and not confident it's because you haven't done the work beforehand now 
there's nothing to say you won't go out and have a great day, but you're lessening your chances of that happening. So, you know, whatever yeah. you could do prior to that, and, you know, it can be simple as just a good warm up, you know, prior to that, you might think, I haven't played well the last couple of weeks, but your warm up was great. And that can just give you that extra trust and confidence going into that round. Just wanted to let you guys know that we now have the Me and My Golf app ready for you to access myself and Pierce wherever you are on the go, even if you're at the range. This includes all of our best tips and content as well as the coaching plans. And we also have a great video analysis tool where you can record your golf swing and analyze your swing using the tools in the app. So make sure you check it out. Search for Me and My Golf in the App Store and we look forward to helping you wherever you are. Let's get back to the podcast. Yeah, I like it. Okay, right. Let's, we're going to talk about your game, Blackie, because the last well, the last time okay. we played about two weeks ago, and it was a rematch between me, you, Casey, and uh, uh, Tim, and we lost. Me and Tim lost again, two twice in a row. Um, but the last few times we played, we played Pebble Beach together this mm-hmm. May. We came off and we've gone. God, Blackie's bloody good. He's like a <laughs> he's like a real. He's oh, like oh, real, we we didn't say we were going to say it in front of him. Come on, <laughs> but we're like he's bloody good play, you know. And I mean, I think you shot six under around Pebble Beach. You know, you played really well. I mean, you were nervous on that first tee. You know, it, just that excitement of being there. Yeah, um, and six under around Pebble Beach is. I mean, small greens. It's it was it was great to watch. To be fair. Well, I appreciate that, and appreciate those words, and they won't go to my head. Yeah, look, you know, I've been blessed with the opportunities to play this game. You know, I was taught by some, you know, wonderful people, you know, predominantly Tim Barth, who obviously works on Sky Sports. And I was so happy for Tim this year with obviously Richard Bland getting his, you know, long, long overdue win. You know, Richard's been one of my best friends for forever on a golf course. We're both, you know, Hampshire boys and played on tour together and, and stuff. Um, and I think... Yeah, I've always been, you know, I'm I'm a golf nut. You know, I still now go out and hit balls twice a week. You know, I wouldn't say I'm scouring the pages of of um, you know golf teaching books and what have you. Because I think one thing I've figured out is like, you know, what do I do well? You know, when I hit bad shots, what is it generally? And you know, Andy, you've helped a lot here as well with you know we've, we've shared videos of my swing and when you've come to stay and stuff. And I think, you know, I've just realized I have a certain swing DNA. If you look at my first lesson that I had with Tim, you know, back in the sort of, you know, late, late 90s to, to where I am now, there's a certain swing DNA. There's a certain move that I have. And over the years, all I've done is make it more repeatable, worked on my strengths and just tried to sort of, you know, chisel away at the weaknesses to whereby they don't sort of come in and sort of wreck your round type thing. So. You know, I have a certain comfort level now when I'm swinging well. It's sort of right. I feel good over the ball, you know, and I hit my little, you know, fade down there. It's not overly distant, but it goes pretty straight. And I can rely on it. And I think that's to keep my enjoyment level of the game up now. That's really all I focus on. You know, my short game has always been sort of fairly strong. And I've always sort of kept practicing that. Putting, you know, is a bit in and out sort of these days but I have days like at Pebble when I rolled it pretty good and Trotty wasn't too impressed but um, (laughs) you know it's always good to get to get one over on him but you know to play places like Pebble and I remember you know I watched your podcast when you guys talked about that trip you know which was just 
yeah, you know, I was 50 this year and we had some, you know, other big birthdays in the group as well. Um, and we wanted to go somewhere special and we were able to play there. You know, I was nervous on the team because I'm just such a you know, fan of the game to go to these special places. I remember the first time I played St Andrews and my dad was caddying for me and it was a, a practice round in the St Andrews Lynx Championship. I topped it off the first and duffed it short of the bird. This is a practice round and I was so nervous because of the history of the game. And, and Pebble was a similar thing because, you know, I'd seen, remembered you know, Jack Nicholas winning, uh, you know, US Opens or Tom Watson chipping in on 17 or Tiger, what he's done in sort of, you know, recent days. So to go there and play it. And that was why I was sort of nervous. It wasn't so much like, you know, I've got to shoot a good score. I've got to play my best. It was just to be there. And I think the weather was perfect for us because, you know, it was misty at the start. And then as we got to the coast, everything sort of lifted. And then, you know, to, you know, I think I had four birdies in the first seven, which was like dreamland to me you know, to be there, experience it, obviously with some great friends, but to sort of play well. And Trotty. And, and <laughs> yeah, some great friends and Chris Trot. Yeah, exactly. But to play well and just have such a fun day. And obviously we were lucky enough to play some other courses as well. Um, but yeah, you know, I did play well that day. But even prior to that trip, you talk about present, you know, um, preparation. I made sure my game was in a, decent space going to it because that's just who I am I suppose I'm you know I'm just a golf nut who just wants to enjoy these experiences to their fullest fullest potential I suppose yeah and I think I mean something that that's noticeable about you Blackie now is I think you, you mentioned it just you know what you're capable of you know what you you're good at so you leverage that to the best of your ability yeah and I think you're, you're at the point with your game now that it's not about making changes or making big improvements because you've done that in previous times with your coach, Tim Barter, years ago. And I think what we like about your, let's say, approach now is you do know what you're, what you're good at, but you're not really changing. You're not going to the range and changing 10 things. You're not reading up magazine yeah. articles every day and going, I'm going to try this, I'm going to try that. Um, you're really just, you get, you get into the golf course and, you, and you're playing the game, which is, which is uh, but I mean, Having said that, how important do you think it is that amateur golfers um, should have a coach and have somebody who can help help their game? Yeah, you know, obviously I have a, a fairly extensive knowledge of the game. So, you know, not saying I'm self-taught because I use a lot of things that obviously Tim said, other coaches, you know, stuff you've talked to me about as well. Um, because I'm, you know, absolutely a sponge for things that I think are, are key to me. But I think every golfer should have someone that they can check in with just to sort of keep them on the straight and narrow. There's so much information, like you guys have, you know, both met my dad, bless him. And like every time we get on a, a call, he'll tell me about, you know, his last game or I read in this, I'm going to try this. And it's like, you know, I love his enthusiasm, but it's just, you know, he's crucifying himself really with regards to his golf because a lot of the lessons just aren't for someone of, you know, mid to late seventies with limited flexibility. You know, he's looking at, oh, I need, I need to get sort of wider in the backswing or whatever it is. I mean, it's not going to work, you know, if anything, he should be just swinging it around himself, you know, and just trying to get the maximum run, use the ground as his friend type thing. So I think everybody needs to find a coach. And, and I think this is the key for me. I tried a few coaches you know, early on in my career. And it was really, you know, I just gelled with Tim. There was something about him 
just his approach, maybe it's personality or whatever. And we spent, you know, many, many, you know, weeks and hours and, and what have you on the range around the world, because obviously his job with Sky gave him the opportunity to come out for quite a few weeks. And, you know, I'll still call him one of my sort of close friends today because we had such a great relationship. And obviously he's had that with Richard Bland. Richard started working with him probably a couple of years after I did. And they've stayed true to the course throughout the whole time, which is pretty rare. So I think it's finding your person in terms of your golf coach. It's just someone that is really in tune with you. Ideally, I'd find someone that doesn't want to change too much, really. I think too many people like, you know, there's very few people in, in golf have changed the way they play. Now, Faldo did it with obviously Ledbetter. Tiger amazingly done it. He's done it numerous times. But there's very few that you look at that, oh, my gosh, they completely changed their swing. Because I don't think people have the time to do it. Your average amateur golfer doesn't have the time to do it. But you can find someone that can use your inbuilt talent. Everyone has a talent, you know, an ability to play the game. Um, and it's finding that person that's using that inner strength. What's your core strength? And then using that to make you more consistent while looking at the things that really are quite negative for you and are actually going to you know, cause you to have those doubles and triple bogeys. They can then work on those with you, whether it's short game, whether it's putting to sort of, right, let's just, you know, turn this from three shots to two or from four shots to three you know, while using your core strength and core DNA, find that person and then have your regular checkups. And that's going to give you that trust and confidence that we talked about. So when you go out on the golf course, you can just play. And I think too many people go on the golf course and are way too technical. Once yeah. you step onto the first tee, you know, I know people talk about swing thoughts and things like that. It's fine to have one or two, but I see so many people with five, six, seven, they're paralyzed because they go through all these things, a couple of shots in, they go sideways. Then they're like lost because they're like, what do I want to do now? Because this was coach telling me this is what I needed to do. But now I don't know where else to go. And they completely waste four hours of their weekend um, having no fun and, you know, slam the, the, the boot of the car and think, right, that's me done. I'm never playing again. <laughs> Lo and behold, they're on the range Tuesday evening trying to fix it again. Because that's the crazy game that we all we all love and enjoy. Yeah, I think I think we definitely refer to you as a as a player or even a gamer. I think last night they were talking about John Daly, some referring to him as a gamer. Okay. You know, what, what, what does that mean to you? And do you see a difference even amongst the good players? Yeah, I mean, player and gamer to me is someone that can right. You know, you get out in that sort of competitive space and you just find a way of, of doing it. And, you know, I think with regards to. John Daly, yeah, you know, he obviously, he, he, he won a few tournaments, but he, he seemed to win more majors, you know, those big <laughs> events when he had yeah. that moment of just go out and do it. Mm. And I think that's because he's so relaxed, doesn't really care. He absolutely cares, but comes across as like, this doesn't mean everything to me. And I think that was his way of probably deflecting some of this uncomfortable excitement. It's just like, ah, it's just a game of golf type thing. Now, you know, for me, every time I go out on the golf course, it means something. There's, there's some, you know, driven thing inside me which wants me to shoot the best score possible. And I think that's what makes me, in your words, a sort of player in a game. I just want to go out and play my best while having fun. I'm just trying to sort of, you know, whether it's test myself or whatever it is. And I think 
that's just the mode I got into as a competitive amateur and then obviously pro just to, to be that way. It's, you know, it doesn't make or break my weekend if I have a great score, but while I'm out there, almost out of respect for the game and the time that I'm out there, I want to try and get the absolute most out of it. And, yeah. you know, I learn things most times I go out about myself or a certain shot I tried that did work, didn't work and, things like that so i'm constantly learning too and it just goes in the memory bank for the next time i go out and play yeah i think there's something going on sorry you go i'm, I'm just thinking as we're going through this because we we talk about it a lot and you, you just know a gamer or a player i'm just thinking i'm just as as i was as we're going through this now i'm thinking right it would be good to deconstruct what a gamer is and write down all the things mm-hmm. that they have that other golfers don't have and one of, the, one of the things that immediately jumps to my mind, certainly with you and let's say other people spring to mind like uh, Jordan Spieth, Colin Morikawa, Tiger Woods, um, Padraig Harrington, people who are able to completely forget about what's just happened and focus intently on what's about to happen right now. That is one of the ingredients of a gamer. And I'd love to maybe me and you will do this, Pierce, and we'll just write the ingredients down of a... Mm-hmm of a gamer and of what they have that other golfers don't have. I think, I think that's a great point. And I think that's what, the, you know, another trait a lot of the great players have is, is, you know, the previous shot never affects the following shot or the current shot that you're in. And, you know, I remember reading in Tiger's book and he had this sort of 10 second or 10 pace rule that he'd hit a shot and whether it was good or bad, he'd allow himself a slight celebration if it was a great shot but then forget after 10 paces or 10 seconds just to allow the adrenaline level to settle down because he still had another shot to play. And then conversely, when he hit a bad shot, he would berate himself. And, you know, we've all heard him sort of swear a couple of times on the golf course, but that was just his way of getting that emotion out. And then it's gone for the next shot. Then it's solely focused on the next shot. And I, you know, I'll be perfectly honest. I was a very angry child playing golf. You know, numerous times I probably broke a few more shafts than I cared to tell my parents or smash the occasional golf bag. And I was the same playing racket sports. It just frustrated me that I wasn't better than, you know, perhaps I wanted to be or I was. And then I remember, you know, my parents having a strong talk me one day and almost sort of saying, right, you're going to behave like this. We're going to stop you playing golf. And then that thought of them taking away the one thing that, you know, I loved doing i was just frustrated doing changed me overnight and became way more placid way more accepting of bad shots and i think that's a lot that amateurs can understand is you know whether you're an 18 handicap or whatever people still expect themselves to hit perfect shots every time it just doesn't happen that's why your handicap is what it is and you know i was chatting to you know you mentioned the game i played yesterday um and i played with tim Casey's um, brother, um, who, by the way, played much better yesterday, thanks to your little tweak of his his grip. So he's, good. he sends his thanks. I'm good. He's, he still wasn't able to hang on to a three-up lead with three to go, but um, <laughs> that's, that's still, he didn't lose. So we'll look at it that way. But we were talking about putting, and, you know, he, uh, he, he was missing a lot of sort of three, four, five-foot putts, and he was getting so frustrated. And then he had a putt on the um, the 14th hole, the par three down the hill at Lomas, where I sort of landed it on the on the flag when we played the other week. And he, 
and he had a he had a four foot putt, and he was like, "So you know, I keep missing these. Like, what's the percentage on the PGA Tour?" And I was like, "What do you think?" And he was just like, "Oh, they, they, these guys never miss. They never miss these. Was it 1995?" And I said, "No, it's it's probably 80, 85 percent." He was like, "What?" I said, "Now we're talking tournament conditions. We're talking, you know." tour green speeds you know pressure things like that so there's a lot of things it's not like they're sitting there with 100 putts and they're holding you know 85 of them type thing but you know greens on tour are perfect these guys are very good and i said then you get to like you know five feet six feet and i think eight feet pga tour average is something like 50 percent now if you say to a guy and i've played with many guys who are you know decent handicappers um and they're you know five handicap or better they miss from eight feet they're furious they're absolutely <laughs> furious and they're like oh complete joke what am i doing and then if you think well the best players in the world are probably at like 60 65 the tour average is low 50s you've got to give yourself a break there's an expectation level here and i think everyone goes into the game expecting to hit perfect shot after perfect shot and they're annoyed when they make bogeys and things like that. But that's why you have a handicap to help you and almost give you that little buffer to make you, should make you feel a bit more relaxed going out doing it. So I think that's a key thing with regards to the top players is they know they're going to hit bad shots. They also know that they're probably going to hit some great shots and get these shots back. But one shot doesn't define the next shot. They're able to forget about it very quickly and just solely put them out itself in the process of that one shot. And you hear about the cliche of, oh, one shot at a time. It's true. You know, whether it's the first shot on a Thursday or the last shot on a Sunday, it still counts as one in the overall scheme of the tournament. Yeah, you'll feel a little bit more pressure with regards to a shot, but it doesn't make that shot any more important. They're all important, but they're also, you know, all worth the same thing. Um, and I think that's a key thing for, for amateurs, certainly, to, to think about. I think there's two traits you mentioned there, or, well, yeah, one and a half, really, that uh, the best players are very good at understanding what expectations they are they have, but also yeah. they're very good at understanding what they can and can't do, and they don't try things that they can't do. You know? no, how, no, how often I, did you play a shot in a tournament when you're, you couldn't play it? Yeah, I mean... I think you try that a couple of times and you realize you're being stupid. You know, you know, I, I, I can't hook a three wood, you know, 250 yards. It's just not worth doing. But what, what can I do to break it down into something, you know, that's manageable. And I think I was very good at that. I would just steer clear of, you know, hitting shots, you know, I couldn't do. And you play with players that are just different animals. They hit, hit the ball further, carry it further. But then I would go, well, I know what I can do perhaps is slightly better than that particular player. So you're always trying to play to your strengths, steer away from your weaknesses, but don't try something that you haven't practiced or mastered on the range um, or that you just know physically you're incapable of. It, it's, you know, it's insanity basically to try and do that because all you're going to do is add shots to your round because you're going to put yourself in a position which is going to almost, you know, um, lean on you unraveling somewhat well let, let's put this into context when was the last time you attempted a shot that you can't actually play let's say it was a big high hook three wood or whatever um it's funny actually yesterday i, I hit a tea <laughs> shot yesterday no, that's a right answer. Enough, I, hit, I hit a tea shot yesterday 
And as soon as I hit it, and there's this particular hole on the back nine at Lomas, it's got a sort of tricky par forward. It's it sort of had my number lately. I just can't seem to play the hole correctly. So I got on the tee shot and I pushed the tee shot and I was straight behind this tree. And I had, um, it was a big slice with a seven iron or I could have hit a hard hook with a nine iron, which is we all know, you know, and I was in a slight semi-rough situation. We all know it's tough to curve the ball, certainly with modern equipment, modern golf balls, it's tough to curve the ball anyway. But certainly out of rough, you know, certainly the rough we have here, this more sort of semi-Kikuya type thick stuff, it's tough to sort of shape it. And I was adamant, right, I'm going to hit the big high hook with the nine iron uh, because the lie was good enough to do it. It was sort of sitting up okay. But in my head, I'm like, you struggle to hit hooks anyway. And, you know, to me, that was the one shot that would lead to a bit of, you know, lack of control, I suppose, more than anything. So I actually was quite proud of myself. I actually went to the shot that I thought I could play better, which was more of the lower hard slice with a seven iron. And yeah, I hit it to sort of 20 feet, but I really wanted to try the, the sort of <laughs> hook with a nine, but knowing full well that, you know, the chance of success with that would have been way higher than what I, what I did. Um, but it still doesn't stop that sort of little boy inside you going like, I want to try this, I want to try this, I want to try this. And that, I think, comes down to the, the fact that over the years I have tried and failed in certain shots, um, which sort of dictates now my shot choice when I'm playing golf courses is right. Just stick to this. Just stick to You know this. You know this. So that little voice that we all have on our shoulder saying, you can do this, you can't do this. That I've almost nullified that a little bit more nowadays because I just steer away from certain situations. But um, there'll be some point soon when I just do something stupid and realise, yeah, that wasn't a clever idea. But I, I start practicing that hook nine iron from the sounds of things. You're going to be hitting it. I'm going to, yeah, now it's got me thinking. I'm definitely, the next time, <laughs> because of the question you asked, I'm definitely going to try that. I'll tell you how I get on. And I think we've gone through the mindset questions, to be honest, that we had down there. Should we go into putting, shall we? We have, yes. Okay, putting, right. Lucky, when we play, you always seem to roll them in from from um, from anywhere. Um, I want to go through, I want to sort of pick your brains and pick your thoughts on this. But if I said to you, what is it that makes you a great putter? Because you are a good putter. What would you say the components are for you? Um, yeah, look, you know, everyone talks about, you know, putting is a game within a game. I think that's true. There's no doubt about that. You know, a round of, you know, you shoot 72, you've probably had about 30 putts. So it's very important. The putter is a very important part of your game. It, you know, it's like 40% of the strokes you hit in a round are probably with your putter. Um, I think it's more of a mental um, side of golf than perhaps the, the, you know, driving a golf ball or hitting irons and things. But I think more than anything, it's, it's understanding what putting is. Now, to me, putting is, it's starting the ball off on the right line and by a means right line, how you've read it. Obviously, green reading is, is a skill and I'll talk about that in a second. But it's starting the ball off on the right line at the right speed. And then if you look at, you know, the green surface and certainly obviously folks in the UK are putting on, you know, winter greens and things which aren't the best right now. There's a huge amount of trust that goes into what the ball is going to do on the ground. So more than anything, I learned 
you know, when I started putting better was to give up control. You can only do so much. And that is read the putt as you see it. And I think one of the things that's made me a good putter is my green reading skills. You know, obviously we've had these books and things which, you know, have been somewhat controversial that players have been able to use on the tours and they're sort of they're banning them for next year. So I think, and I'm, I'm all for that because I think that skill of reading greens is something which will set certain players apart from others. Um, so green reading is key. But like I said, the giving up of control, and that is like once you set it on its way, it's out of your control. You know, if the ball rolls perfectly on a nice green, great. But there are always little indentations, whether it's, you know, spike marks that obviously we're able to tap those down now. Might be a little indentation or an old, you know, um, pitch mark divot and what have you. You've got to give up so much control to do it. So I think my mindset was the thing that changed, which allowed me to become a, a better putter. I used to get so frustrated, a bit like I was talking about there. With if I ever missed from inside ten foot, I was like, "What are you doing? That's ridiculous." But you know, missing is all part of putting. You've got to almost expect that this can miss. You know, it, it's a bit like. You know, Seth Curry's obviously just broken the three-point, you know, shooting record over here in the NBA. And, you know, the reason he makes many three-point shots, he shoots so many as well. But he never forget. he always forgets about the ones he misses. You know, he just keeps shooting because he knows it's a numbers game. He just keeps shooting and he shoots, you know, these three-pointers. So with putting, it's like, yeah, that putt didn't go in. But it doesn't mean to say it was a bad putt. You might have misread it or it might have hit something, or whatever. Now, I'm not saying you make excuses every time, but you just go to the next part going like, okay, I'll read it as I see it. I'll hit it on the line that I see it, and hopefully at the right speed. And then the hole just catches the ball. So I think the, the, the wanting to make putts, if, if you don't put that pressure on yourself and just go, you know what, I'm just going to start this on the line that I think, and then if it goes in, great. And then... That, to me, freed me up a lot better with regards to putting rather than thinking, right, I need to be, you know, really rigid with my setup and everything. And I've got to swing it back this far and swing it through this far. I've always been fairly relaxed with the putter because, again, as a kid, I didn't hit the ball very well at all. And even through a lot of my amateur career, I didn't, you know, strike the ball as purely as, as most. But I got the most out of it because, you know, my putter would sort of bail me out of certain situations. But because I felt more relaxed on the greens than than anything else, to be perfectly honest. Yeah, it's interesting as well that you, you mentioned about the green reading there, and you know we talk about process a lot, the routine for amateur golfers. I, we just see so many people get that wrong, and, and there's kind of two parts. To this obviously green reading we, is the first thing that we just don't see amateur golfers really practice that much. They no, don't really practice a, it, which is huge. It's, great, it's a massive yeah. part. I mean, and, I. I I did a lot of that when I was, you know, a, a pro. I remember being on the putting green at Having Golf Club, which is, you know, my home, you know, back in, in Hampshire. And I remember being on the putting green one day and I was just like, you know, I, I had a tee peg down. I'd put a tee peg where the ball was and then I'd read the putt and put a tee peg where I felt the apex of the putt was. And I was just looking and I was doing this on the green and just, you know, I was basically, I was, I was practicing my green reading. Now, this was a green that I'd, you know, obviously hit a lot of putts on over the years, but the holes are always in slightly different situations. 
And this guy came out and he's like, what are you doing? And I was like, I'm practicing my green reading. And he thought I had like two heads, just like a crazy, you know, type thing. But that to me was an important part of, and it's an important skill. And obviously breaks change with the speed of greens as well. The time of year, you know, the thickness of the grasses and things like this. So you know, these are all things people need to get into. But I'd say, you know, the most important part when you go to a, a, a golf course, whether it's your own course or, you know, a new course for the first time, is really get into the speed of the green, try and figure out what that pace is. Now, whether you have a sort of, right, this is, in my head, I have this home speed, whether it's like, this is what my golf course is speed-wise normally at home. I've gone to a new course today. They're a little bit slower. So putts are going to break a little bit less or they're a bit faster. Putts are going to break a little bit more. You need to get into that mindset because then, when you start reading putts, um, you know, you'll start to see the lines a bit better. And again, another thing that changed with me with green reading, I was in um, Orlando, actually at David Ledbetter's place, which I know you've um, spent some time at Champions Gate. And there was a psychologist there. I think he's still on staff with David, Dr. Robert Winters. Yep, Dr. Barb. <laughs> Dr. Bob. Amazing um, haircut. Amazing haircut. Yeah, yeah. I'm so jealous of his hair completely. <laughs> Hence why you and I peers are wearing hats today, for sure. <laughs> and he's just showing off. But um, and he was working. I was over there with Justin Rose. Justin was taught by David for some time. And then Dr. Bob came out and sort of talked to us about putting and stuff. And my putting was sort of, you know. What wasn't as great? I don't have a great season, you know. Previously, this was, I think, this was what 2000, end of 2001. And I was sort of, you know, back on the challenge tour for 2002 and spent about an hour with Dr. Bob. And he he taught me something I'd always read putts from the ball to the hole. And he said, Play it like a movie, but in reverse, like you hold the putt, the ball pops out of the hole. How does it run back to you? And that gave me an amazing visual, which I still use to this day. So it gave you the positive thing of like the ball was in the hole and now it's coming out back to you. So you're almost playing it in reverse, but you've hold the putt almost in your mind before beforehand. And that gave me such a better look at rather than sort of guessing where the ball was going from, you know, where I was to the hole, I would play it in reverse. And it gave me such a better visual in my mind. And again, it will work for some, it might not work for others. But that allowed me to read putts even better, I think. Doing Here's a question much. question for you on that then, Blackie. Do you know when you're reading putts, do you, when you play that movie in reverse, the ball coming back to you, do you imagine the trace? Are you picturing the trace of the journey of the putt? Yeah, I suppose, you know, sometimes, and people have asked me that as well, like, you know, oh, what colour do you see? And it, it changes every day. Sometimes I always see a black line or maybe it's a red line or, or whatever, a white line. I don't always see. It's almost like, you know, where is my mindset that particular day? And sometimes I, I do actually physically see a, a line in my, in my mind. I'll see, you know, this line and I think, right, just start the ball on that. Now, obviously, you've got to start it on the right speed to follow that line. And have you read the putt absolutely correctly? So, yeah, I'm a great one for visuals, um, you know, whether it's picking a particular spot you know, three feet from the ball, or do I pick the apex? That changes depending on the putt, depending on the length of the putt, depending on the type of break. Is it a double break putt? And you might need to pick sort of two points and things like that. So I'll break each putt down into its individual thing. There's not one 
process I think I have on every putt. But, you know, whatever the putt is based on the experience and the number of putts I hit, you know, I'll read it that particular way or I'll see the line that particular way with that putt. Mm. And are you, are you on the ball, are you line or no line? I'll, I'll use a line more predominantly for probably putts of, I don't know, 10 foot in, something like that. But um, others, other putts, I'll sort of, I'll put the line actually towards the front of the ball. And that's where my, my, my head and my eyes start looking. So I make sure I sort of get the, um, get the putter to accelerate through the front of that ball. So just that gives me something to focus on. And then once the ball's gone, I know I've kept my head down. But like when I'm a bit nearer the hole, I'll sort of turn the line to more on top of the ball to use that just as a start point. Is that almost more, I know Aaron does this a lot, that it's more so when he has the line and he's using it is because that's in a range where he expects to hold yeah, it more so. Yeah, almost you have the peripheral vision, almost mm -hmm. you can somewhat yes. see the hole type yeah. thing. And again, on long putts, you know, the reason that 20 foot putts are like whatever, 3% on the PGA Tour or whatever it is, because you're not really expected to hold them. So mm. to line the thing up is, is almost, you know, you know where you want to try and start it. And that's when I'll probably use a spot three, four foot in front and go, well, let me just start it over that. Now, I, you know, and I'm just, I'm somewhat using the line, but I can see that spot in front of me. And I'm just like, right, let's just start it over that point and, and see how we go. Because once the putt's gone, it's out of your control. If it goes in, it's, you know, it's probably more luck than anything else. The fact that the ball's been able to, to roll purely over greens, which, you know, certainly off tour and not in the, the best condition, toward, certainly towards the end of the day with all the footprints and, and what have you. Yeah, I think you've, 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 it's a great phrase that you've used, give up on control, whether it be mm -hmm. from after the putt has been hit, but also during the stroke and also yeah. in the reading of it, you know, there's only so much you can control. I love it. It's really good. Yeah, no, that's key. I think the um, this podcast is... One of the things that me and Pierce are really passionate about now, and that this podcast sort of brings it to light really is, look, how do we get golfers better? And what I love about this podcast, and I suppose the podcast in general, um, it allows us to talk about other things that aren't based on technique. We haven't talked tech. The only technique thing that we've talked today is a minute ago when you said, I'm just keeping my head down for that split second longer but for me, this is the definition of a gamer. And for all the listeners to this who were working at their external rotation of the trail elbow at the top of the backswing, <laughs> but understand that all the things that we've talked about, there's a reason that you, you played on tour. There's a reason that you're spotting some of the best players in the world in terms of talent. And you're looking for a lot of these things. And these things that we've discussed today are what, are what makes people play better golf. Not swing it better. This is playing the game better. This is, and it's just a, it's such a key point that I think if the listeners would to delve into this side of things so much more, they're going to see so much more results. It's just a, yeah, I think it's a real positive podcast, and I'm glad we haven't talked much about technique, which I knew we wouldn't anyway. No, and I'm I've never been a technical person. You know, I think I always wanted to know when a certain shot happened you know why did I hit that left or why do I do that but then it was like to me it was then right the feel is this and that was something I worked on with Tim I was like right what is that feeling it was not like oh you need to do this make sure this this 
twists by five degrees and then you know I'd be lost and you know I was fortunate enough to chat to many other coaches and I remember I was in Dubai once and we were practicing at the Emirates where Pete Cowan had his academy and you know Tim and Pete always shared ideas and Tim was struggling it was you know my right elbow is always somewhat sort of you know it's flown out it's got a bit on top at times because I shallow it down so well on the downswing you know it was never really a problem but Tim wanted me to sort of try and get it in, in the slot as such um, a bit earlier on the backswing and it was we were just struggling I was struggling with his like words I couldn't quite get the feeling and then he said you know do you mind if I get Pete to come over Pete came over and he talked about supination, pronation and all these <laughs> things for like 10 minutes. And I was, it was like left-handed Japanese to me. I, was, I have no clue what he's talking about. And I thanked him for his time. And it gave me another sort of, you know, viewpoint on what Tim was trying to say. And I said to Tim afterwards, I was like, I don't know how he teaches like these players because I was so lost in the midst of that, you know, him talking about, you know, I've heard you guys get technical on some of your lessons as well. And I'm just like, I don't have the bandwidth to try and understand that, let alone do those things in a two second window when you're swinging the golf club, because it happens yeah. so fast. So to me, it was always about feels and things. Yeah, there'd be a technical aspect to a lesson, but I'd never take that technical thing to a swing thought it was always like right what do I feel what do I feel what do I need to do to sort of make me feel this way and that's really it that's been my DNA technical was never something I wanted to to be you know I'd always do things to try and give me that feeling yeah and I think this is something that we've we speak about and it's interesting that when we came up with a little bit of a, a, a saying by mistake, really, after doing another podcast, I don't even know when it was, but it literally was good players play golf. Now, it seems very yeah. simple to say that, but if you think about it, any amateur golfer listening to this, you've probably got an hour or two to play golf in a week, other than mm -hmm. when you have your normal game. So an hour or two to practice, should I say. So let's just say that you have only got an hour a week to practice. Go and go on the golf course with that hour. You actually go on that mm -hmm. golf course. And the trouble is, though, if they only play three holes – and they only hit 20 shots, they feel I have, they haven't hit enough shots. But if those 20 shots are learning how to play the game, then great. Now, if they have then got the ability to, number one, understand if they've got a real issue in their golf swing, yes, of course, they can go and train in it. And if they have got the ability to have a little bit more time when they can bash balls, then brilliant. But number one priority should always be just go on the golf course, even if you've got half an hour, go on the golf course and see what you can learn in half an hour. Because I think they would just learn so much more and they develop the game so much. Yeah. I mean, you see it all the time. You know, guys, girls go to the range, you know, a couple of, couple of seven iron swings, and then it's the drivers out, yeah, you know, yeah. which, you know, to me, the one club I very rarely hit when I'm practicing is the driver because, you know, it's the longest club. If any negative trait or, you know, fault you've got is going to be ingrained in it's going to be with the driver yet everybody tries to change their swing with the driver and it's just not going to happen and that what you said there was going back to the quality of practice and the efficiency use of time you know if you have got an hour and a half I would absolutely tell people to go out on the golf course I was always a great player practicer and by that I would go out on the golf course and try and hit shots it's all well and good going on the range and going right I'm going to hit fades for you know 
you know, six buckets of balls are fades. You know, as soon as you've got, you know, a pin on the right side of a green with a, you know, pop bunker short right or something long left, you know, to stand up there and hit that shot, visualize, because you've got a definite target. Two or three of those swings will teach you all you need to know about that sort of process to try and hit that particular shot. And I remember reading stuff, you know, Jack Nichols would have, you know, full day, right, I'm going to go and practice today, go out with his coach, you know, Jack Grout was his long-time coach. He'd go out there and just flush it for 20 minutes, hit every shot perfectly. He'd go home. He wouldn't sit there and pound away until he almost like knocked himself out of form. Now, I'm not saying that's the modern way of doing things, but if you go out, you know, and just go, you know what, I have such a wonderful feeling. He's then got the rest of the day with his family, his wife, whatever, doing other things, knowing that when he goes the next day, I played so good yesterday for those 20 minutes. He's almost positive going into the next day. Now, some people equate practice to the number of balls they hit you know, the time they spent out there, I did this, I did this, I did this. And I always go like, well, you know, that's that's um, quantity over quality. I'd much rather have quality over quantity. And like you said there, going out on the golf course, learning to play the game, because that really is golf. Golf isn't the number of balls you hit in a day. It's the number of strokes you have in a round of golf. You know, that's playing the game. The swinging the golf club is playing golf. They're two different things. Yeah, you need one to do the other but we're judged on how we play golf not really how we swing a golf club yeah i like it i like it okay right blackie we're going into quick fire round then um, okay i've really enjoyed it some great things i think for the for the listeners in this i think um yeah there's loads of notes that i've written down which have been really good so thank you um okay quick fire best advice you've ever had uh best advice i've ever had was don't try and do something you know you can't do and that goes back to something we talked about in this it, uh, Piers Ward <laughs> <laughs> I don't know I, someone else might have said it before you but okay you <laughs> okay okay worst advice worst advice you hear worst advice I hear yeah, you guys are great with this one which is like keep your head down <laughs> yeah yeah we're going to be coaching people out of that for the next 20 years. Got to keep your head still. Got to keep your head still. I'm oh, like, God. absolutely no. If you can actually play this game, you know, like Annika, like David Duval, like Henrik Stenson, you can play this game and even Dustin Johnson to some extent. If you can play this game and allow your head to, to go, the rest of the body follows and it makes for a much better movement. Definitely. Um, what would you change about golf? Um... The time it takes to play, unfortunately, you know, time is such a rare commodity nowadays. Um, you know, four hours now is considered a fast game of golf. I remember playing my dad, we get around in, you know, two and a half hours, two hours, 45. And, you know, I think the evolution of professional golf in terms of a TV spectacle has been great, but it's also slowed everybody down because everybody sees these guys on tour who you know, probably take longer than they should do or just the way golf courses are set up now. They're big, you know, big beasts. They're these big expanses of land that take forever to get round, you know, from, you know, green to the next tee is a, you know, five minute drive or, you know, if you're walking, takes even longer. So I love golf to speed back up again, whether that requires 12 hole golf courses or we just play nine holes. I don't know, but unfortunately it takes too long, which I think, 
you know, denies a lot of people the chance to play golf because they just don't have that amount of time. Yeah, definitely. Um, what is on your golf wish list? Golf wish. I think it's that big high draw with a three wood. Um, <laughs> that I was talking about golf wish list. Um, I think to play Augusta is probably, you know, I've been fortunate enough with, with Adidas to be able to go there the last four years. And it's been a real treat, you know, again, being a golf anorak as such, you know, I watched every masters from the early eighties and then to finally set foot on, on the grounds there and uh, walk around, it's been a real treat. So, yeah, I think if I could, uh, if I could play, Play one round there, I'd be very happy. Having played, obviously, we played Pebble. I've played pretty much all the Open Championship courses and a lot of other US Open venues. But Augusta is that one place, I think, you know, every golfer would love to to enjoy an experience. It'd be nice to play 36. I always think if I, if I ever get a chance to play that, I want to play 36. 36. That's probably one of the only courses that I really want to play 36 holes at. <laughs> yeah, I mean, again, I'd be happy with 18 and maybe, you know, a whiz round the par three course. But yeah, um, yeah. yeah if, if we're being greedy, yeah, 36 then for sure. <laughs> so if there's any any listeners to this podcast who are members, just DM us on Instagram. We've got, four, we've got, a, we've got a good four ball ready to go, ready to roll. Absolutely. You never, you never know. There might be a listener. You never know. Um, okay, final question then. This is a good one. This always catches people out. So, uh, what are three golf truths? Three golf truths. Uh, the golf ball never lies is one. Um, now that's all to do with, you know, you guys talk about um, swing path, club face, all that sort of stuff. And that was, you know, I was very fortunate years ago to have a lesson with John Jacobs you know, very sort of Dr. Golf, the originally original, you know, founders of the European tour and what have you. And he was a member at Brockenhurst Manor in Hampshire. And I was struggling with my game at the time. And the, the captain, a guy, a lovely old guy called John Nattel was captain of um, Hampshire at the time. And he said, come up for a game. You know, I want to, you know, I want you to meet John. And I was like, wow, type thing. And I went out with him and I was just hitting these big, over the top, steep, I just couldn't get rid of it. I'd had a few lessons and I was, you know, I was a decent player, but, you know, I was either pull hooking everything left or just this weak cut to the right. And he played like five holes and I'm like getting frustrated because he hasn't said a single thing. I'm not playing particularly well. And we get on the sixth tee and I hit this driver and he was like, all right, grab me another ball and sort of put the ball down. I go to tee it up. No, no, put it on the deck. And I was like, okay. So I sort of, he goes, I want you to hit this off the deck without touching a blade of grass. I want you to like pick it off. And this was, you know, persimmon driver days. And I hit this thing against three inch diver over the top. And he sort of said, okay, so, you know, how are we going to change that? And I was like, geez, I don't really understand it. So now I sort of thought, okay, well, maybe I've got to swing a little bit around myself. He goes, yeah, you've got to come in shallower. And then, you know, for the rest of that day, I, I it changed me within seconds because suddenly I, I went from being this tilt and over the top type thing to suddenly I was back inside on the way back. And again, like, you know, we know I, I shallow it a little bit on the, on the downswing and I was hitting these just, I didn't tee it up for the rest of the day. I just hit these persimmons off the, and then we talked about, you know, club face. And he said, that's been my thing forever. So, you know, the ball never lies, whatever the golf ball does. And I've heard Butch Harmon say that about John Jacobs as well. And the, the golf ball never lies. 
So that's one truth, a little long-winded. <laughs> uh, the, the next truth is um, I've never seen an amateur over-club ever. <laughs> you know, whether it's, you know, they've got 150 and the amount of times I see, you know, I'm 150 yards, I'm thinking, right, you know, I'll hit nine iron. I'm playing in, in you know, matches with people. They're all bring, bringing out a wedge. Or if I know it's a seven iron for them, they're bringing out an eight iron. I've never seen anybody consistently hit it past the hole. So I'd say to any amateur golfer out there is like, lose the ego in terms of, oh, I hit a wedge into that hole. Yeah, it's great. You know, he pitched on the front of the green, spun it back in the bunker, you know. So I think that's a, a, a definite truth is we can all hit one club more. And I would Just say, you know, more. even even pros, it's pretty rare that they hit it past the hole. You know, generally green slope from back to front i understand that so you want to leave yourself the uphill putt but i've very rarely seen an amateur consistently hit it flag high or certainly past the hole so i tell everybody to hit one club more in every situation without question and the third golf truth is uh oh wow this is a tough one um let me get you thinking yeah the third golf truth is i think we all think we're better than we are at the game i think we judge ourselves based on our best days on the golf course whether you go out and you shoot net 66 in your medal you'll go out the next time thinking well actually my handicap six better than it actually is where it's not so I think that comes a lot down to the expectation of us. And I'm guilty of it as well. Um, you know, I remember when I sort of stopped playing professionally and then, you know, started working for what was, you know, TaylorMade LS Golf in Europe. And then I'd play occasionally. I'd still think I was as good as I was on tour, you know, in terms of certain situations and go, you know, why can't I hit that 250 yard three wood? you know, over a bunker or whatever. And I wasn't practicing. So to go out there and expect yourself to hit shots when you're not putting the time in that you did before. So I think everybody, you know, needs to give themselves a break really and think, yeah, it's great when we play well, but that those good rounds generally happen a lot less than the bad rounds. Golf's one of those strange sports. You know, even the greatest player in our generation, you know, Tiger, had a very low winning percentage of toys, still huge winning, say, winning percentage compared to everybody else, but he lost way more times than he won. So, you know, to go out there and expect that you're going to play great every time is an unrealistic expectation, I think puts too much pressure on people. I think to enjoy those good rounds is great, but almost expect, not expect you're going to play badly, but, you know, accept that you might have more bad rounds than good. Um, is, is probably quite a good way to go, which is why, you know, when you shoot under your handicap, your handicap drops more than the point one you only go up each time because the handicap people know that the point ones are going to be more throughout the season than the drops. Yeah. So I think that stats in itself. So I don't know what you think of those three truths, but awesome. I think those seem to work. Uh, I, think, I, think, I think they're, they're, they're really good. And I think it's, uh, you know, if it, Anyone listening to this, just just listen back or get like a, a pad and 
pen like Andy had and just take some notes on this. And I think actually um, it's well worth taking a screenshot and sharing with your friends as well. And maybe Blackie, you should actually take a screenshot and share it with Trotty because I'm looking at everything that you've done here and spoke about. And it's a serious thing though, because Trotty's a very good golfer, good ball striker. Very good. But if very he actually did half of what you've just talk, talked about oh. in this, Andy's taking a screenshot now and tagging him in now, I can see that. If he actually did half of what you've talked about in this podcast, he'd be infinitely better. Oh, you know, he's a huge talent. Obviously, you know, he's, he's, he's great what he's doing for golf with his, you know, with his job with TM and stuff and Trotty Golf and we love him to bits. But, you know, he, he's one of those guys who infuriates me because, unfortunately, you can't tell him anything. He won't listen. You know, he sort of goes <laughs> in one ear, out the other. He's but getting better. He's getting better. Very talented golfer. You know, he's a better ball striker than I have. But, you know, I'll beat him nine days out of ten pretty much because my mentality and he said it to myself that I you know frustrate the heck out of him because I'm just so sort of you know level emotion wise whereas he just explodes and things like that <laughs> all the time and as much as he says he's getting better you know he struggles with that side of it but he's hugely talented and you know he tried obviously to get on the European tour and played a little bit of challenge tour golf but it just wasn't him because his emotions and his mindset wouldn't allow him to do it he sort of put so much pressure on himself where he'd expect himself to be just a hundred percent every single day which yeah. it, it's not it's not fair on yourself to expect that of yourself it's a very very tough game mm. you know physically demanding certainly mentally very demanding but day to day it can change so much in terms of you know it's such a, a quirky movement the golf swing is a very strange thing to try and repeat yeah. And the best players in the world train and work all day, every day to repeat themselves. And they struggle. So for people that have, you know, jobs, careers, families, limited time to play, for them to expect themselves to go out and repeat is almost impossible. So you just think, right, if I repeat it a few times, I'll take that as a win and look at that as progress rather than just like beating themselves up when they don't hit one great shot after the next because the game is too tough for that, unfortunately. Right. I think it's a um, it's a recipe for never being happy on the golf course. That if your expectations are yeah. off, you are very, very. You'll only be happy on the odd occasion where you have a pretty good round, and even then, you're going to be disappointed because you'll feel like you've lost shots out on the course as well. So, yeah. I think it just shows how important it is to get those expectations in check, which allows you to free up. But also, another important part is have a, have a bit more fun on the golf course when you're out there. <laughs> Enjoy yeah, the experience. Yeah, it, it's a game it's a it's a break from work um you know and games should be fun um you know i see too many people that seem to have a tortuous four hours on the golf course and then you know bless them they're like right see you next week and i'm just like i don't know how you do it you know <laughs> it just drives me nuts you know why why put yourself through it when you know it's a game that's given me and i'm sure you guys agree a, a lot of joy over the years it's a wonderful game that has allowed me to travel around the world and you know meet um some great people including yourselves and there's so much the game can give if you allow it to give you that i think too many people put too much pressure on themselves and you know they could get way more out of it if they just r relaxed around it a little bit more yeah the gamer yeah, look word. at look at the notes look at the notes i've made today 
the gamer recipe. We're going to do the gamer recipe. There we go. There we're going to we do go. it. Excellent. It's going to be done. It's going to be posted on social media, and we're going to post one out to Trotty as well for Christmas. <laughs> um, even though give him a recipe. What was this? <laughs> uh, but no, no, Blackie. Look, thanks so much for your time. It's been great to chat, and I think it, that was my a, pleasure. Um, a great insight to why you do some great work, not only you know for Adidas, but also out on the golf course, really. So. Um, yeah, looking forward to the rematch when we come back over in January. Oh, don't worry, we'll be ready. Your uh, yeah, your your students over here are busy practicing, so they're they're all improving. But um, no, thanks for your time. I'm uh, you know hopefully I was able to say something that people can uh, you know glean something from and hopefully improve. But you know, well done to you boys for what you're continuing to do with uh, with golfers. And uh, yeah, I implore everybody to listen to to Piers and Andy and uh, continue to get better because they uh, they talk a lot of sense sure, <laughs> sometimes you know and again like I said this this game's been very good to me I love it and I just want as many people as possible to to get the enjoyment out of it that I've been able to have yeah true that true that thanks Blackie awesome. thanks man thank you guys have a great Christmas and yourselves and yourselves <laughs>